2: Hi everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. In this episode, I'm talking to Salma Elwardani about her contemporary novel, These Impossible Things. Salma is a writer, poet, and BBC radio presenter. She performs internationally and works with global brands and has given TED Talks to help change the lives of women and girls. In this episode, we discuss how Salma built a brand using Instagram to share her writing as a way into the publishing industry, exploring female friendship between Muslim women where their faith plays a positive role, and how to approach the challenges of editing. But first, here's Salma with an excerpt from These Impossible Things.
1: Their laughter split the air and in a heartbeat, lightness was back. It's always easier to laugh about things than to cry about them. The afternoon stretched out ahead of them, and the heat made Malik drowsy. It was a cruel paradox to be bent in study during the summer months. She'd gotten used to long summers and no responsibility during their undergrad years, but graduation had come, and the prospect of leaving while Jenna completed a longer course and Keith stayed on for grad school was more than she could stomach. And so, she clung on to the halls of academia in the form of a master's, ensuring that their circle remained unbroken for one more year. Sometimes she recognised that they were all existing in a perfect moment and eventually it would have to end. Other times it felt like it would always be this way. This was one of those times. Bodies sprawl across the grass, laughing away fears too big to talk about. Jenna's theatrics making them feel okay about the things they weren't actually okay about. With summer unfolding before Malak, the heat hazing her vision into dreams, Everything seemed so possible. The smell of happiness clung to everything. The precipice and threat of change, of responsibility and full time jobs was too many tomorrows away to think about today. She yawns and feels her eyelids meet, her body sliding down to join Jacob's on the grass. Keith continues to argue with Jenna, practicing to be the lawyer she's training to become. A handful of blossom drifts over their heads while weathermen report on record high temperatures. The city has never looked better and the university buildings that sprawl across every corner shine white in the sun, their spires resting across a perfect sky. In the suburbs, a woman stares at the view while rocking a newborn baby who has finally stopped crying and believes for the first time that she can do this. Two streets away in a bakery... A couple of strangers meet for the first time. Later, they will tell their friends that maybe you can fall in love at first sight. Students work from corner tables in coffee shops, each one believing that the rest of their life is just about to start. Mo takes his latte from the barista and smiles at his phone. He feels more like himself than he has in a long time. Four blocks away, Saleh stares at the woman he'll marry one day and is ecstatically happy that his date didn't show up last night. A cleaner gazes out the window at the group of friends on the grass and is excited he's saved enough money to fly his children to him. The breeze slowly makes its way through everyone, and they all believe in utopia, at least for a moment. Malek smiles to hear the bickering around her, and hope is full and round in her mouth. She can almost taste its sweetness. Which is why, later that night, when Jacob leaves her and Utopia becomes a mere philosophy to be scoffed at, it sends a jolt through her so sharp that, for an instant, she could swear her teeth shattered. Hi, Sam.
2: Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me today to discuss your debut novel, These Impossible Things.
0: Thank you. It's so lovely to be here.
2: So can you start by telling
0: us what your novel is about? Yes, absolutely. So it's a story about three women. They each come from different backgrounds and they are each dealing with their ambitions and their wants and their desires and making their way through life at that pivotal time when you leave university and you enter the working world. And it's suddenly this shock to the system that actually you weren't a grown-up all the time before when you thought you were And it's such a pivotal age as well, where very big decisions have to be made and you have to make quite conscious decisions about which direction your life is going to go, at least for the next couple of years. So it's about these three women who've been friends since they were kids at that pivotal point, making those decisions. And one night something sets them all adrift from one another and they find themselves suddenly alone without the women who've been by their side their whole life, making these big decisions. And it's very much a story of female friendship and how different a woman's life can look when the women in her life suddenly disappear.
2: Mm, And we're going to talk about that pivotal scene a bit later. But first, I wonder whether you could tell us where the title came from.
0: Do you know what? Since this is a podcast about confessions... um, I confess that it was nothing to do with me, absolutely <laughs> nothing to do with me. That's quite common
2: um, though, I think. I think a lot of people have their titles changed or someone gives them a great idea for a title. So yeah, tell us the story.
0: Yeah, I know. I always, before I got into publishing, before I published, I always had this assumption that the titles were, you know, came from the author and but they're not it's so unromantic how titles actually come into the world and it's all you know input from the marketing team and input from sales and what's going to resonate with the audience at this particular time so it's um it's unfortunately an unromantic and just a logistical process but originally the book was called the way we were and that's the title that i had given it i wasn't wedded to it but i liked it it spoke to the nostalgia that I think runs quite heavily throughout the book, and my American editor said it's a Barbara Streisand song. You can't have it.
1: <laughs> and I
0: was like, well, why not? I mean, Barbara is great, and I hadn't thought of that. That hadn't occurred to me. Maybe that's a generational mm. thing, but I hadn't put that title on paper and then thought, ah, oh, Barbara. Um. So that was out outlawed because of Barbara, and. And then I said, well, I'm not fussed. If anyone's got a better idea of what you want to call it, I'm all, I'm all ears." And, and then kind of my editors just put their heads together, came up with a few um, and said, what about these impossible things? Which also speaks to um, a lot of the theme in the book and these women re- reaching for, for something impossible and whether they can get it. And it fits and I, I didn't hate it. So I just said, yeah, sure. Why not? yeah fine go for it if that's what the sales and marketing thing is gonna is gonna hit however what none of us did was break it down into an abbreviation for a hashtag because it is in fact tit (laughs) which we only realized once it had been decided and I felt like that was a huge oversight on all of our parts Mm -hmm. because then sometimes I'll get emails saying tit and I don't know whether to be amused or devastated by it I think I'm somewhere in between
2: I mean, it's not as bad as, what was it, Susan Boyle's Album Party. That was the worst one, I think. Um, a, a hashtag that went very wrong. Um, but, I mean, I love that it's three words and there's three women in the in the novel. I think that works really well, the kind of symmetry of it.
0: Yeah, and apparently, according to sales, three words in a title works for buyers. Apparently, who knew? It's something it's like doof, doof, doof. There's something about the rhythm of it, apparently. Um, So this is the very unglamorous, dull side of publishing.
2: Well, I think it works really well. And I will publicise the cover when I post this episode, because I've said to you already, I think the cover is absolutely stunning. So uh, it works beautifully on the page as well. So you have written in your acknowledgements that readers are either one person or another. They either read the acknowledgements or they don't. Well, I am a definite acknowledgements reader. And I Good noticed, woman. <laughs> and I noticed that in your acknowledgements, you said when you first spoke to your agent, you'd only written three chapters, but you'd said it was basically done. You had the idea, you knew where it was going. So, did the idea come for this novel as a complete, fully formed package? How did that idea come to you?
0: Mm, yeah, I totally lied to my agent. <laughs> this is re- really in the confession box here, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> Um Yeah, I told her it was written, and it definitely wasn't. But I had had this idea in my head for years. And so I knew I wanted to write this story. I did not know at the point that I said to my would-be agent, hey, I've basically written it all. It's pretty much done, but I want to rework parts of it. But here's the first three chapters. At that point, only three chapters were written, and I had no idea where it was going to go. Or how it was going to end. Um, I had a vague idea of how it was going to end but I didn't know how I was going to get there. I didn't know what was going to happen to each of the characters. So it definitely wasn't fully formed. The the kind of the genesis of it was I knew that I wanted to put Muslim women on the page. I knew I wanted to put female friendships front and centre on the page. The plot was kind of a secondary consideration to all of that which I would like to take this point to say I I'm not advocating this behavior <laughs> I'm not necessarily advising that you go in this way but that is how I that is how I ended up with my agent actually
2: yeah that's breaking the the golden rule isn't it because when you approach agents you're meant to have had it already already written and when you give them the first three chapters you are meant to have the following ones written as well so you broke the golden rule yeah. there
0: I broke a lot of rules and I um, at the time I was i was at a stage where i was doing rounds of interviews with various agents i was lucky enough to have quite a few agents interested which was wonderful and they they'd kind of read the first three chapters they were interested i was having these meetings and then out of the blue i got an email from another agent my would be agent and she said oh i see in your instagram bio you're writing a novel um do you are you signed yet is it signed and I said, Oh well, actually. And I replied, You're just in the nick of time. I'm in the middle of rounds with agents to sign with an agent. So if you'd like to be considered as well, then throw your ring and throw your hat in the ring. Mm. And um she did. And I and I did. I had in my Instagram bio for about three years writing my novel. Um, and then so I also included her and I had meetings with her and had meetings with all the other agents and myself and my agent Florence who's remarkable connected straight away she got it she was aligned with all the things that I wanted to do um, with this book and future work and I just loved her and adored her we loved the same books we understood the same things. and in the end I yeah she was the one that I picked that I went with which she wasn't the front contender because there were there were obviously other agents and then she at the very last minute suddenly appeared Um, and then I you know fibbed to her and here we are (laughs) x amount of years later book published and done
2: so when you said you had other agents interested had you gone down the route of querying the kind of traditional way of uh, contacting agents how did you kind of go about looking for agents
0: well anyone who has been in publishing, is in publishing or trying to get into publishing, listening to this will know that it's impossibly difficult and there are many, many gatekeepers. And so in 2013, I had written a couple of chapters of what is now this book, looked very different, had different character names, um, had a different title, but it was the same story. And I sent that off in 2013 to some publishers and I at the time I was working in corporate I was heading up marketing departments for an international company I was you know working the the city grind kind of you know 12 hours at my desk in the heart of London at Liverpool Street and just wanted always wanted to be a novelist always wanted to be a writer I knew that was kind of where life was going to end up and so I sent my first version of the book to lots of different publishers and no one would touch it no one was was willing to take it on. I got some nice feedback that they enjoyed it, but this wasn't something that they would touch at this time. And the context of that is at the time, the media was full of a very Islamophobic rhetoric. There were a lot of terrorist attacks happening, Paris bombings had happened, and there was a hesitancy to touch it, which naturally infuriated me. And. Because I worked in marketing, I understood that if you hold a community, you hold the key. And so I got all these rejections. And then I said to myself, do you know what? I'm just going to build a brand so big that eventually they will come to me if this is how I have to do it. I understand that as a brown woman, working class woman from Newcastle who has zero connections and his dad works on a market stall and is not going to hook me up with his publisher friend in London, at whatever publishing company um, that he went and played golf with, that my entryway into publishing was was pretty small mm. and I couldn't see a way for myself to traditionally get there so and I knew marketing so I said right I'll just build a brand and they'll eventually come to me because that's how marketing works and so then I started my Instagram and then I built a brand and then it got bigger and bigger and then someone asked me to do a TED talk me to do a second TED talk and someone asked me to write a chapter in a book called it's not about the Burker, um which was best-selling and award-winning and wonderful and then suddenly I was published in this anthology and suddenly I was in the publishing world and suddenly we were at the book launch at Foyles in London and suddenly there were agents and publishers there and people who worked in publishing and suddenly I was making connections. And, um, and then Florence, my agent, who had followed my work and enjoyed my work because my Instagram was full of my writing, that's what it was about, um, had loved my writing and had followed it for quite a while, saw then that I was writing a novel and then came knocking on the door. So that's kind of how I got into it, which is, again, not the not the traditional, not the classic way. But I, I tried it and I didn't get anywhere with it. And I didn't see a way to continue with that avenue.
2: So I will talk about the book in a bit. But as we're on this kind of route of talking about your career, I'm really fascinated to hear that your career started as you building a brand for yourself, being your own advocate and creating this career from writing non-fiction and personal pieces did you always have the dream then of being a novelist as well it was just you knew that to to get into the world of well, fiction you had to prove that you were a, a great non-fiction writer as well
0: no I don't think so and I think I I I took that opportunity for it's not about the book because I loved what the book was about and what it was hoping to do, which I think it did do. And, you know, I think it was a wonderful opportunity. So of course I wouldn't say no to it. And I can write. I'm a writer. I know how to write. So sure, you want me to write an essay about Muslim women, then yeah, of course I can write that essay. But it was I've never aspired to be a nonfiction writer. I've always known that books were where I was going to live in some form or another. So all my life until quite old, I wanted to be a librarian. That's all I wanted to do. such a dog I just wanted to be a librarian and until I kind of grew up and realized that there was no money in being a librarian and so I decided to become a writer where there is also no money so that didn't really play out that well for me but I was I was just obsessed with books as a kid I was home educated I didn't go to school we didn't have a tv growing up and we still don't have one in the family home so all we had was everyone in the house had a bookshelf and that was it. And then every Thursday, we'd go to the library. I'd take out nine books because it was the maximum. I would read them. I'd bring them back. I'd take out another nine. So I was eating through books and had a very unconventional education. So I wasn't in school every day. So I could just do what I like. I could wake up and I could read four stories that day. and I could... So it was just always books. And then, the, do you know what, weirdly, when I was really young, my mum gave me all the classics, so kind of Dickens, Tolstoy, Austin, and she gave me a whole chunk of Daphne du Maurier books because she would loved them when she was a girl and I read Rebecca and I got to the end of Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier and the ending shocked me so much maybe because I'm just terribly bad at seeing it coming and I didn't see it coming and I remember talking to my mum I, like, I went upstairs after I finished I was like oh my god did you see that coming and she looked at me she said yes Salma I was like, oh my God, I did not. That totally blew me away. And I remember distinctly the feeling I had when I finished that book. Like it just rippled through me with such strength. And I remember thinking in that instance, I want to make people feel that. I want to do that. I want to be the person that writes something that makes someone go, oh oh my God. Um, And not in a sensationalist crime way. Oh my God, I didn't realise it wasn't the butler who killed the person. But just, you know, I want that absolute, like tidal wave of emotion that I felt finishing it. I wanted to make people feel that. So I always knew that I I wanted to be a writer and I wanted, and I've been writing since I was a kid, telling terrible, terrible things to be fair. When I look back on the things that I wrote, it was painfully bad, but I was always putting pen to paper and I was always making sense of my emotions by putting pen to paper, which is how poetry happened. So it was always, it was always gonna be, and I even when I was working in corporate, i was like i'm a writer and then i got to writing some non-fiction stuff and i would write articles because that's how it started to build and um and so I, I just but it was always fiction people used to say to me when are you when are you publishing a poetry collection and i used to think oh i'm not it's fiction for me i'm a writer i'm a long-form writer this poetry thing happened by accident and i'm glad and it's great and i love it and i feel like becoming a poet made me a better writer but it's Oh, I don't. I'm not really interested in publishing. I mean, maybe one day I will, but it's. I need to publish my debut novel. because it's going to be my novel. It's going to be my novel. So it was always there. It was always going to happen, I think. And thank God that it that it did. Mm.
2: And you say in your acknowledgments that the writing process is terrible, backbreaking, sweating, <laughs> glorious, awful. So I want to know: has all the pain been worth it?
0: Do you know what i stand by this writing is a terrible process i don't know if you feel the same mm-hmm. about it but it's awful and when i finished this novel i finished the first draft and i printed the whole thing out and i tied it up with a brown ribbon and i put a flower in it so i could have my joe march moment <laughs> and I, I i took a picture of it and i i put it out on twitter and i said finish my manuscript and then i said and don't become a writer unless it's the only thing you can do unless you can't breathe until you write it out don't do it because it's awful and it's terrible and I stand I absolutely stand by that if you think oh that looks cool I might do that don't do it I have to write I don't think I would I couldn't live I couldn't make sense of my life if I didn't put pen to paper or fingers to keyboard um and it is awful. And when I sit there to write, I'm always like, Fuck "Me, I don't know why I do this. This is terrible." And then, what writing is is it's a really solitary process, and you just basically are in a room by yourself, talking to the voices in your head, which thankfully I like doing. Um, but I don't. You don't sit there and the violin plays and rose petals fall from the ceiling and it flows out of you in this, you know, emotive outpouring. That doesn't happen at all. You have to pull the words from you painfully like a splinter in your skin and put it down in front of you. You have to sit there even when the words don't come. You have to sit there when you don't have a single idea in your head, when you don't know how you're going to get your character from A to B, when you don't know what's going to happen to your character. You have to sit there and dedicate yourself and stare in front of that blank screen and be confronted with your own inadequacy every single day. You have to write sentences, especially when you're doing long form. You have to write sentences. Read them again at how shockingly bad they are. Be confronted with how shit you are and then continue regardless and still keep going despite that in the hope that something beautiful will come out of it. Even if it is that one glittering sentence amidst you know four pages of drudgery, you have to keep going. And that is terrible. Why would anyone want to do that? And then you publish it and you get this tidal wave of emotion and it's amazing. And then life is completely mundane and normal. And then publishing is really difficult. And also it's really difficult to get your book noticed or heard, it's really difficult to get a book deal that you can kind of sustain life and pay your bills with. You have to do another job. So now you're doing this terrible act while still trying to juggle a job to pay your rent because publishing doesn't pay unless you are, you know, JK Rowling or Richard Osman, right? And there are very few people who, who get that kind of success with with books, especially in a time where, you know, a Lot of people on publishing sees their readership down year on year because people just want to watch an Instagram reel, so it's, it's a pretty devastating thing to do, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I was and say yet...
2: Really, really selling uh writing to everyone right I now. Know, I'm so that, sorry, like, down you do it like you say because you feel like you don't have a choice in it. So, you I would, would I
0: couldn't not be doing
2: this out of choice, yeah.
0: No, I wouldn't. If someone said to me, you can totally be fine if you didn't write, yeah, grand, I'd do something else 100% um and have a more comfortable life and pay my bills more easily um but yeah this is I have to and I unfortunately I love it and when you do write that sentence that you go ah yes that is amazing whether that feeling carries you through I don't know Mm. but I am I'm here I'm a writer it's I think it's all it's the best thing that I, I think I'm skilled at lots of things and I do lots of things very well but I don't do anything as beautifully as I write. I hope, at least, I I, I hope that there are at least a few sentences in the book that people considered beautiful or that were beautiful, and I managed to achieve that at least for a moment in the book.
2: Mm, and there's certainly moments in the book that really moved me, and I think will resonate with other people as well. So I want to touch again on the novel and talk about your three central characters: this amazing female friendship uh, between Keys, Malik, and Jenna. But you've said already that this there's an argument that divides them and shatters their friendship, completely changes the three of them and they go off on their own, essentially. And it's such a pivotal moment, but a lot of it's dialogue. And so I wondered, how did you approach that, knowing that it had to change so much between them?
0: Well, like I said, it's just me talking to the voices in my head. <laughs> I mean we're mad if you think about it we're mad um you know what it wasn't a conscious decision I didn't sit there and think oh should this be more in dialogue or should there be more prose around this I didn't think I just let the characters there were so many times where I would sit down not knowing what was going to happen and I would write and a character would just take me off somewhere and I'd go oh okay that's where you want to go sure I'll follow you there let's let's go there um and the conversation just unfolded in my head as I was writing I didn't really have an idea of what could be big enough to set these three women apart from one another i didn't know if it was going to work i thought "Mm, they're going to have a fight but what's it going to be about and and i just let them talk to each other in their head I think it's probably quite an unhelpful thing to say because um if there are people listening to this who who are writing or want to be a novelist then i appreciate that that's a wanky annoying answer but what i will say is i'm not a plan i didn't plan this book i didn't sit down and and say okay this chapter this is going to happen and this chapter this is going to happen which publishers and agents like they like to know what's going to happen. they like you to break it down and do an outline. I am not that person. And when I was writing essays for GCSEs or when you're in exams doing essays, you know, you're meant to do the essay outline at the top and then write your essay. I oh, did I hell? I never did that. I just went straight in. I was like, Ooh, okay, let's write. Um, and I always found that the outline and the planning hindered me and held me back when I, I had ideas and I was ready to go straight away. So, and the book was the same. I didn't sit down and think, okay, this um, scene where they have a fight and it breaks them apart, how are we going to do it? Well, I just let the voices in my head talk to me.
2: So that must mean that you knew all three of them so well to let those voices, or do you feel, I mean, some people feel like they are just like a um, the person voicing these characters. And again, another wanky thing to say, but that they exist outside of you and you're just mm. translating onto the page.
0: Or do you feel like you did the work and you knew them really well? I think I knew them very well. And I think... I, you know, I'm, I love walking and I will, I used to, I wrote this book in lockdown, so every day I'd go for my daily walk and they would just be chatting in their heads to one another and I feel like I'm the person just watching and get to write it all down. Um, you know, and I knew, I knew my character as well, I knew kind of the traits of each of them and the kind of thing that they would say i think there of course there's elements of me in all of them there's elements of friends in all of them there's elements of like a stranger on the train and the strange habit that they do and in all of them because i think you observe your world around you and then you put it on the page but i knew that i couldn't it couldn't be me in all of them because then it would be just, it would feel like exactly the same character and how would you then differentiate what well, i hope i've done which is three very different women with very different drivers and different needs so it was I just think I just knew them very well.
2: One thing that your book does so well is that nuance of friendship and romantic relationships. And I, one thing you explore in all three of them is how their Muslim identity plays such a big part in that. Um, Jenna describes it as a game, almost finding the right type of guy that fits into her life, her Muslim faith, her family's approval. Um, and it becomes quite a significant conflict for all three of them to find a man that does all these things, and particularly for Keyes, who is dating a white guy. So can you tell us about this aspect of the novel?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think we all play games, regardless of your faith or your culture. I think everyone is playing this huge game, trying to balance the things that they want, which are the things that society has told them to have, and trying to detangle those things. I think that's just a real human issue that everyone has. And I really wanted to include that because I was very dedicated to writing the lives of three Muslim women in which their faith wasn't the reason they were on the page or the reason they were in the story. And it also wasn't something that they wanted to rid themselves of because I hadn't ever seen that. I didn't find that anywhere. And I wanted the complexities of loving your faith and wanting your faith and appreciating your culture and wanting your culture, but also being frustrated by the very different elements of it, because just because you are of faith doesn't mean you have to love everything about your faith. And just because you belong to a certain culture doesn't mean you have to love everything about it, you know. Um, and I, that's the that's the nuance that I wanted to put on the page, because it's not straightforward and it's not easy to pick your way through that But I think on some level, we're all picking our way through it. We're picking, especially when it comes to romantic relationships, because so much of what we feel about romantic relationships has been fed to us by society's notion of what's acceptable and what society wants you to do. What society wants women to do is find a man and get married, because that's the highest measure of success for women in society. Still, to this day, I still believe that it is. No matter what career achievement I have, my granny will still say, are you married yet? Um, and that's my Irish granny, right, let alone my Pakistani granny or my Egyptian granny, they, you know, it's still the same across cultures. It's still viewed as the best thing that I could do. And people would celebrate me if I got married in a way that they wouldn't for any other career achievement. And so I think that's true of everyone trying to piece through what society has told them is acceptable which is where the game comes in, right? That Jenna talks about in the book that we're all playing this game. We've got, even if you're not from a faith background, you're playing this game to get like the suitable partner that everyone goes, oh my God, like what a catch. Um, But at the same time, someone that you can like enough to build your life with and not compromise. And are you with this person because everyone thinks they're great, great. And are you compromising yourself? or or what are you having to give up to be with this person and is it worth it, right? Is the things that you, are the things that you're giving up, you know, do you want to give them up and is a man worth it to give them up? And so that's kind of the nuance that I wanted to put on the page instead of just blindly accepting that romantic relationships are absolutely the end all and be all.
2: And you're right, I think I, I don't think I've come across a novel that explores faith and identity in a way that isn't a kind of, a conflict with that that's never an issue in the novel the these women are very secure in their faith it's more about how their relationships fit in with that and that fit in with that um peace and happiness they have within that faith
0: mm, yeah absolutely and it was really important to me that they they have that peace and happiness in the faith because it wasn't going to be a story that damned their faith which is what a lot of literature did you know the representations of Muslims in media and entertainment in literature is a damning one and it has caused huge i think i think it's caused catastrophic issues for Muslims around the world especially in the west um and so it was really important to me that it was never going to be something that that damned islam it was going to be something that they loved but they could they could criticize
2: and you mentioned that part of you is in all of them so mm. one aspect that I wanted to touch on was Malik goes to Cairo after mm. she leaves university and experiences this horrendous heartbreak and she expresses a real love for Egypt but also a, a frustration with it so <laughs> was that um similar to your experience or were you inspired by your by your travels?
0: I mean, yeah, a lot of my travels to Egypt are in, in the book. The things that you see and that you hear. I don't think you could write about Cairo unless you knew Cairo, unless you would lived in Cairo. And I lived in Cairo for two and a half years. Um, Obviously, I was born there, you know, I was there for the kind of young years of my life before I came to, to the UK. and then And then I lived there again for two and a half years. And Cairo, you can't fight Cairo. Cairo always wins. You can't fight the city. Um, you have to give in to the city, and then you will learn to love the city. But Cairo is incredible. It's this brilliant place, but it's also maddeningly frustrating because the traffic's so bad, and you can only get one thing done in a day. You know, we could be here and say, we're going to do five errands today. Forget it. In Cairo, you can do one thing. That's it. And I remember my cousin telling me that when I moved there, and I thought, what do you mean one thing? Like, there's a whole day. We could do loads. But by the time you've got through the traffic to get to the bank, and you've stood in the queue and you've chatted to this person, you've chatted to that person, you've had a cup of tea with that person in the bank because apparently that's a thing. And then, you know, this person's talked to their mate, it just goes on. So it is an imaginingly frustrating place, but if you can give in to the city, it can unlock so much in you and unlock this whole incredible world. And it is amazing. And I know that I'm Egyptian, so there is a level of noise and drama and sound and chaos that I am genetically predisposed to. Um, And I've got friends who aren't Egyptian who go to Egypt and they're just kind of like rabbits that caught in the headlights, you know, just kind of like, oh my God, it's so noisy and oh my God, the chaos. Whereas I go there and I'm like, ah, yes, this feels about right.
1: plushcare.com slash weight loss
2: and how easy was it for you to kind of transport yourself back there when you were writing this in lockdown presumably in the UK
0: yeah no it was so easy and I've been back and forth since I moved back to the UK so it was it wasn't a fast stretch for me to take myself back and I love Cairo and I often get homesick for it especially on hot summer nights when the heat is beating off the pavement in a way and if I catch a scent of jasmine somewhere I'm immediately back in Cairo because there's so there's so many jasmine trees around Cairo it's the smell that you always get in the city so it was pretty easy to go back home Mm.
2: so all three of your women experience moments within their relationships where there's a kind of crisis of identity but not in not in the sense as we were saying of of thinking that they would lose their faith Um, but it's more about how romantic relationships and relationships with other people can alter you. Um, And you also Mm. touch on some darker themes, including um, abuse and coercive control, but you achieve those things with real delicacy and in a really slow burn sort of way. Can you talk about why those themes are ones you wanted to touch on?
0: What I wanted to do, and I hope I've managed to in some way, is to show the grey areas that exist when you're a woman and I think so much of the female experience exists in these grey areas where it's not so black and white and you're not sure if that was acceptable behaviour and you're socially programmed to believe that the unacceptable is acceptable when it comes to romantic relationships and if you think about the version of romance that we have been fed from Disney to rom-coms it's actually quite toxic you know you're meant to have this complete overwhelming rush of emotion that that takes over sense and logic and you're meant to just do ridiculous outlandish things and we call it love but actually the behaviors that it asks of us are quite questionable um and I just I wanted to include that gray area where As a woman, I think that getting into a relationship as a woman, if you're unfortunate enough to be straight and have to fall in love with men, I think it's very difficult. And I think because of the patriarchy and because of our our awareness and our continued conversation of the patriarchy in a way that we weren't having when I was a kid, um, at least not in mainstream Instagrammable ways anyway, where you can put a logo on a t-shirt because of course conversations of the patriarchy of feminism have been happening for decades. Um, from very renowned feminists but I suppose in a very tidbit way there is a hyper awareness of the patriarchy right Um, in a very mainstream way I should say and I think if you exist in that world as a woman then trying to mold your life with a man's is difficult because every societal norm tells you to bend over in a certain way tells you to compromise tells you to give up tells you to surrender It doesn't tell the man the same our society teaches men to take and women to give and so if you put that in a romantic relationship it's going to cause some issues it's going to be difficult because you're working against all your societal programming to not give too much and it's really hard um and I think I wanted to include how just how difficult life is for women you know there's like you said, there's coercive control, there's abuse, there's sexual assault. There's all the things that make a woman's life so difficult and that, unfortunately, so many women go through. And I wanted to write a book about the female experience. And when I finished and I, and my friend read an early proof and she said to me after, she said, God, you really put these women through it. Yeah. And I said, yeah, but haven't we all been through it? Mm-hmm. And she said, yeah true and how could I ever write a book about the female experience and not include sexual assault and coercive control and abuse because every single data point tells us that it's happened to either one in four of us or one in six of us or there's no way I could write about the female experience and leave that out and that was really really I was never going to leave it out
2: Mm. I mean there's certain scenes in the book where you could almost imagine an alternative book where you make things easy for the characters. You make it a a Disney-fied ending where the family is accepting or, um, you know, I, I don't want to give too much away at the book about the book. So I'm not going to give too much away now. Um, one of the characters gets engaged and you think this is the wrong decision for them, but perhaps there was there, I mean, I know you wanted to tell a very authentic, honest book, but, did you ever feel that you wanted to make life easier for them? Because these characters are living within you and you are going, you are feeling what they're feeling. Was there ever a point where you thought, with I'll give you an example, with with Keys and her family, was there ever a, a point where you thought, you know, I know it's not the, the real ending, but it
0: hurts to write the authentic ending. Did you ever feel like that? No, i'm a sadistic bitch so (laughs) absolutely not i love it and my my point was i'm gonna make as many of them right you know have as much heartbreak as i can like (laughs) what can we fit in here i love that um i I think it is just that it isn't clearly but um do you know what it's funny because when i think about this book i think there is a happy ending and when it comes to keith and her family i think there's a happy ending there as well Mm. and i think I think it's really human, the emotional cycle that her family go through. And the book ends with the knowledge that, oh, they're going to come around and it's going to be okay. They just needed this period. And that was really important. I was always going to include that. And that, for me, is the happy ending. But I never thought that I was going to make it easy for any of them, that it was going to be all tied up with a bow. I wanted to unravel the bows and I wanted as many to be unraveled by by the time you reach the end of the book and this book has a happy ending for me because it ends with those three women reunited and the circle closed once more mm. and that and that female friendship kind of reunited and that's the happy ending because the women are each other's saviors they are each other's knight in shining armor they save themselves and they save one another. And through all the difficult things that they go through and the terrible things that they go through, which all women go through, the happy ending is that you can get through it with the women in your life by your side, regardless of love and who you fall in. Forget the romantic stuff. It's the women who will save your life. Mm. And that's the happy ending for me that women always go through terrible things, unfortunately. And more of us than we ever want to because when you think about the numbers, it's staggering. But actually, with other women by your side, you will rise again. That's what I wanted.
2: Yeah, and I certainly feel that there's that hope at the end, and a, and a, it is a, a happy without giving away anything. It's, it is a happier, a happiest ending that you could imagine without. It's not a Hollywood. Ending. No, exactly. There's no kind of gloss to it. It's, yeah, and yeah. everything that happens feels authentic it feels real there's nothing in it where you think that's a bit convenient or that's a bit too like you say a bit right you it's it, it it works it feels like you get the ending from the book that you expect but that you want as well so I think it works right. really well without having that kind of Hollywood gloss as you say
0: yeah exactly and I've read books that tie everything up and the character gets everything that they've been struggling with at the end and I just think oh okay Yeah, I don't like your character anymore because of it. (laughs) Too easy, yeah. Yeah, I just think like, oh, okay. And there is a, you know, there's an element of, you know, escapism and life is hard enough and let's have a good time on the page. Sure. I don't know if I'm that right Yeah,
2: yeah. No, I I, I totally agree with that. I think you always want to leave your reader wanting a little bit more. Don't give them everything.
0: Yeah, and I want (laughs) want that grit in it. Mm. I want the pain and the heartbreak in it. And, you know, I unfortunately do it terribly well heartbreak and so that's you know I love writing it and I love writing the deep dark awful thing so that's just perhaps the writer that I am Mm.
2: I want to touch on another thing you mentioned in your acknowledgements which was your relationship with your editor and you said that there was a point where your editor kept where editors uh, kept suggesting things and you would fight against them but then eventually yeah. you would kind of come around and go mm, actually I think you've got a point point." and I know a lot of writers worry about this stage because they feel like they're gonna have to change things about their book that they don't want to change or that they are gonna have to get rid of something that is very dear to them so what was the editing process like for you was it um did you feel kind of they attached to certain parts. It was just wanted to change. Or I know you came around eventually. But what was that process like for you?
0: Joe, you know I have the most respect for editors because I hate editing. If I could just write a first draft and then send it to someone else to deal with completely, I would. I hate the editing process. I've never. It's never my strong suit. But I also know that a good editor can make or break your work. That can really pull out the best of your work, and that they are so instrumental to your work. So I have the most respect for them. Uh, and so I went and my editors who worked on this book were wonderful and incredible, especially my editor, Seema, uh, in America. She was phenomenal and she understood it and she got the book. So there were times where my editors would suggest something and I would say, yeah, no, totally, that makes sense. I absolutely see that. There were times where they would suggest things and I would go, I don't know why, Give me your reasoning and I will decide then. And there were times that they would suggest things and I absolutely put my foot down and said, no, I'm overriding you on this one. Sorry, you're not having it. You're not changing it. I I know instinctively in my gut that this stays the way it is. And especially when I think as a poet, I write in places in poetic prose, or at least I hope that's what I've aimed to do is write poetic prose, because I'm obsessed with writing something beautiful and all I want to do is write something so beautiful that it makes my reader ache. And so there were times where my editors would say, this sentence doesn't really make that much sense because it was a poetic mm-hmm. sentence. And I would, I would be adamant, I'd be like, no, sorry, you're not touching it. it. It makes complete sense to me. It works. I think it makes it more beautiful and it, it's staying. Um, but yeah, the, I I never went into it thinking, oh my God, I have to accept everything that they tell me to. I have to do what they tell me to. But I never also went into it with a, a kind of a fuck you attitude, right? Um, I went in going, I need your help on this. Give me your expertise. But there are some things that you will not get to change. And I think that's probably, if you can trust yourself enough to know, you know, in your gut, which ones need to stay, then always go in with that attitude. I don't Mm. think you should ever go in completely belligerent or completely accepting.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think part of it is that sometimes you do have to argue it out and collaborate in a way. And sometimes the argument provokes a better solution than just one, one of you being right.
0: 100%. You've got to talk it out.
2: So finally, are you able to share if you're working on anything new at the moment?
0: Yes, I am. I have written my second book. I wrote it before this one came out because I didn't want the feedback, negative or positive, from this one to impact my writing. So I was very adamant that I had to write it before this one hit the shelves. So I wrote it back in January. Now I'm editing it. And this one I'm adamant about the title. I'm I'm set on it. I'm not gonna let them change it. This one I'm kind of like if I'm is, lucky. Is enough, it I'm a bit middle song?
2: It. I need to know. Need to check. No, uh,
0: it could be it could be a song actually. <laughs> I'm gonna Google this. It definitely could be a song. I'm gonna check. But um it's uh I'm yeah I'm wed to this title so I'm I'm pretty adamant about it. And it is a book, of course about the female experience because they are the stories that I want to tell. And I'm very excited about it. And I love the idea of this book um, and what it's about, even more than these impossible things. So it's very exciting, but obviously I'm not allowed to say anything else, which is dull and dreary, I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> but it's um I'm editing right now, which I hate. I hate you know,
2: it. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well Sam, I'm really excited to see what it will be and look forward to reading it. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. It's been so nice chatting. That was Salma Wadani talking about her contemporary novel, These Impossible Things, which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop, hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop and if you can I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening and if you've enjoyed this episode please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or if you've subscribed already it would be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time!